For me, Cumberland Lodge began in 1948 when I was asked if I would consider the post of resident tutor at the about-to-be-founded St. Catharines. Saying yes involved interviews first with Sir Walter Mobley, Chairman of the University Grants Committee and Principal-to-be, and then with Dr. Batho, the Principal of Holloway College. Neither felt remotely like interviews. They were more pleasant conversations over the lunch in one case and over tea in the other. I was offered the job, I accepted, and I then spent three marvellous weeks here at the Lodge in August 1948, getting the feel of the place and meeting Amy Buller, the formidable warden-to-be who will figure rather largely in what I have to say. I started work in January 49. Amy Buller, when she was uh, warden of University Hall Liverpool, had been in Germany in the mid-30s. She'd been shocked by the failure of the universities there to see the threat of Nazism. This led her to write Darkness Over Germany, expounding the idea that for want of a serious philosophy of life, the narrow academic specialization of British universities opened them to similar dangers. Coincidentally, several groups of university teachers had been meeting in the 40s to produce a number of papers on the state of British universities. In 1949, this formed the basis of Sir Walter Mobley's book, The Crisis in the University. It examined the spiritual aridity, as he thought, of the university's intellectual endeavors, arguing that the academic disciplines should begin to forego their tendency towards independence and learn to understand each other, that Christians should help to promote such understanding and contribute to it in a spirit of service, and that a local incarnation of such an idea, however limited in immediate reach, was worth more than dreaming and discussing it, however wide-ranging or clever that dreaming might be. It effectively, the book I mean, effectively represented what nowadays would be called a mission statement. And not surprisingly, Sir Walter Mobley became the principal. So St. Catharines came into existence in 1947 from the conjunction of this thinking and Amy's success in persuading the King and Queen to let her use Cumberland Lodge for the local incarnation of this idea. The trust deed of the foundation says, it is to encourage the investigation and discussion of the nature of man and society, the exposition of the Christian interpretation of life in relation to the various secular alternatives, and to stimulate research on these matters and on the interrelation of the various academic disciplines, including Christian theology. To this end, first, it was to provide a college based on the Christian faith 
where courses of teaching and study, reading parties and conferences may be held. Second, to serve the needs of students, particularly in London and the modern universities, and to encourage the interchange of thought between British students and students from overseas, particularly from the Commonwealth. Apart from this background, I had no personal guidelines, really, on what to do. Amy and Sir Walter were there, of course, to help. They had their own contacts. But for the most part, I had to make my own way in creating contacts and trying to set up these reading parties. It was largely a question of visiting universities, mainly in London, but also wherever anything suggested itself. It was a matter of writing letters, making phone calls, seeing people, and then through them con contracting, contacting others. It took quite a time to get underway, but I was amazed at some of the responses. Chiefly, the principal of UCL, who invited me to lunch and after introducing me to about a dozen colleagues over drinks, asked me to, sp to explain, while I was struggling with my soup, I may say, what we were attempting to do by setting up reading parties. Thanks to Eleanor Davis, whom some of you may have heard of, who was then Dean of Women's Students at UCL, and others, that occasion proved of seminal moment as did a subsequent meeting at the London School of Economics with Martin White, the brilliant professor of international relations. These meetings created close links with these two colleges, and that established St. Catharines as a viable concern. After making contact came the planning of reading parties, when staff and students could get together at weekends in term time, partly running their own programs and partly fitting in with whatever we could arrange for them by using our own or visiting speakers. Crucially, and this was absolutely central, non-residential students experienced residential life here and experienced the opportunity for extended discussion, if necessary, all through the night, which such residents provided. They came mainly from UCL, LSE, King's College London, Reading, but gradually from further afield. For example, Cardiff, where a very good Welsh contact in the person of Professor Molwyn Merchant led us to many students coming here, including my successor, Alan Morgan. Then in vacations, we organized parties of English and Commonwealth students with our own program of speakers and discussions, mainly devoted to literature, philosophy, law, medicine, or even specific subjects such as tragedy. In the summer vacations, apart from such meetings, we also arranged international groups to stay for discussion and recreation. And at Christmas, we had our international parties. 
One other job I had to do, which proved very rewarding, was to create a library from scratch, without any of the knowledge, I may say, which would seem essential to such a task. I spent a lot of time in Charing Cross Road, <laughs> where all the bookshops are, <coughs> not something else. Buying what I hoped would prove profitable and open new possibilities for students. And we often received gifts from visitors. The library I started then is now the medium dining room, and for what it's worth, the present bar was Sir Walter's study. Another job, sorry, uh, uh, the other important room at that time, and no doubt still is, was the chapel. Amy set a lot of store by it. It gave a real expression of the Christian basis of the foundation, and we all joined in regular services there, as well as attending the Chapel Royal in the park on Sundays. Occasionally, we arranged conferences, but Amy was more anxious to have student groups than to arrange formal conferences. Of the latter, there were two particularly memorable ones, one for a World Council of Churches group with guests such as Paul Tillich, the great German theologian, one for philosophers from Oxford, including Iris Murdoch, Reading and London, grappling with the divide between metaphysics and empiricism. From time to time, Amy invited special guests, I remember particularly Jill Balkan and a group of drama uh, people, uh, and particularly, most memorably, T.S. Eliot. He met with a small group in Amy's room, now the tiny dining room opposite the other dining room. We met before dinner. At dinner, he sat at high table with students and staff. After dinner, at a plenary session, he spoke to everyone read several practical cats poems and answered questions, very freely, I may say. At drinks before dinner, one of those present who knew that Eliot had just returned from a holiday in Spain asked him a conventional small talk question about the weather. Those who heard his reply have never forgotten it. There was rain in the mountain places, the end of a ten-year drought with the promise of crops. <laughs> that moment of conversational poetry, if you can call it such, was symbolic of Amy herself, since she was, for many, the rain in the mountain places that brought an end to a ten-year drought in some universities. But rain is not, as we know, always comfortable, nor was Amy. <laughs> Her indomitable spirit had something elemental about it, which cost her people's affection, even when it won their respect. She was, or per perhaps better, she had a demonic genius. Her genius was to have seen the underlying dangers of the Nazi ideology, to have discerned how it might be countered in the university world, to have seized the opportunity of her introduction to the king and queen 
to get Cumberland Lodge and to have spurred a whole range of disparate people into action and support, personal, financial, practical, spiritual. No one gave her a snowflake's chance in hell, but succeed she did. Most people would have given up in the face of the kind of adverse criticism and financial disaster she faced almost monthly. Sadly, and sometimes disastrously, the demonic side of her genius meant that she failed to understand other people. She rode roughshod over their feelings and ideas if she thought they stood in the way of what she was trying to do. The problem was compounded by her changeable judgments. Many of her swans turned rather rapidly into geese. But the real measure of her work, I think, is to be found in the enrichment her influence brought to the lives of so many. That influence and that enrichment are no doubt unrecognized by many, yet after every international Christmas party, one of her best inventions, and in subsequent years, Amy got greetings and letters from all over the world from former visitors to Cumberland Lodge. I think I should mention four others to whom St. Catharines and I myself owe so much from that time. Sir Walter Mobley, Elizabeth Elphinstone, and two divines, Father Ted Talbot and Archie Craig. Sir Walter, of course, played a crucial part in setting up St. Catharines and getting things off the ground. He was incredibly patient in working out details for reading parties and conferences, in drafting proposals and letters. Immensely modest and self-deprecatory to a fault, he assumed the blame was his when things went wrong. But while he appeared soft at times, he was fundamentally very strong. Because he knew and understood what he believed in and why. He was quite ready to stand up for himself and what he believed in. He had a keen sense of humor, though he was essentially serious-minded. Altogether, he was more nearly the kind of man described in Hamlet by Polonius to Laertes than anyone I have known. Quite simply, he was a good man. And for that reason, he had moral power. Elizabeth Elphinston, the Queen's cousin and Amy's sub-warden, was a lovely person to know, and thanks to her loyalty to Amy, a wonderful buffer zone between Amy and the rest of the staff. A very necessary buffer zone. <laughs> she had no pretensions about helping with the study programs, but she was an immensely kind hostess, modest and intelligent, though not an intellectual. She had a strong spiritual dimension and plenty of insight into how people tick and how to charm them or cure their ills. Father Ted Talbot, superior of the community of the resurrection at Murfield, was Amy's very close friend and in effect, in effect, her spiritual director in the setting up of St. Catharines. 
he embodied Christian love as few can ever hope to. He had a deep understanding of the human comedy. He was wise beyond measure. His death in 1949 was a huge blow both to Amy and to Cumberland Lodge. His love, his humour and his wisdom would have saved her and the Foundation from many early pitfalls. Archie Craig, lastly, was an old friend of Amy's from before the war, and he became a friend of St. Catherine's when he was a lecturer chaplain at Glasgow University. Later on, he was one of the most remarkable moderators of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. His rich Scottish accent made a very strong impression, not least here and in the park on walks and I regard him, along with Sir Walter, as the most elegant stylish in English I have ever known. His facility for finding the exact word for precisely what he wanted to say was miraculous, and like Sir Walter, he was quite simply a good man. It was a great time for Cumberland Lodge, leaving a host of very special ghosts in its wake, and an unforgettable time for me personally, surrounded as I was by some of the most remarkable people I've ever known. Those years shaped my life as schoolmaster and headmaster for good in both senses of that phrase, and I am grateful to you for allowing me to speak of them today. Of course, they had no less influence on the survival, continuance, and character of the foundation here at Cumberland Lodge. Thank you.